0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today the author of this fabulous new book titled Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way. Uh, The book is already out in 2023 in the UK from Hodder and Stoughton and will be coming out in the US in November 2023 with W.W. Norton, which is very exciting that we have the author Roma Agrawal with us today, to tell us all about these seven tiny objects that absolutely having read this book i'm completely convinced are fundamental inventions that really have shaped our world historically and continue to do so today so roma thank you so much for being with us on the podcast
2: oh it's a joy to be here before we dive into your
0: fascinating book would you mind introducing yourself a little bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this book
2: Yes, absolutely. So, I am a structural engineer by background. I studied physics at university and then went on to do a master's in structural engineering. And I actually worked in the construction industry for, I think it was about 14 years. So, you know, quite a long career, really, as an engineer. And I suddenly kind of found myself doing more and more writing and media work and speaking and so on. And the reason being because engineering, at least in the West, isn't terribly diverse. I'm a woman of color in what's traditionally quite a white man's world. And so I ended up writing um, three books. Well, Nuts and Bolts is my third book because I really wanted to show people how exciting and engaging and interesting engineering is for people from all different sorts of backgrounds. Um, So I wrote built and then I wrote how was that built, which is the children's version and then nuts and bolts. I really went from big to small because I'm best known for my work on a skyscraper in London, which is the tallest building in Western Europe. And I always think of, you know, huge, big scale steel, concrete and all of these, you know, large, chunky things. And then, you know, the pandemic hit and life became small and um i had a little baby and then i started thinking about myself as a child and then i remembered how i used to tr- like to, to like dismantle things and break crayons and and so on <laughs> um i'm sure my parents didn't fully enjoy that but um and so i decided to basically look at the small and the result of that is nuts and bolts which is about seven small inventions that changed the world in a big way So obviously,
0: my first question, um, thinking about that, and again, that idea of kind of being sat in a room as a child and seeing what you can take apart and investigate, there are a lot of options. How in the world did you narrow it down to seven, sort of which seven, and how did
2: you choose? Sure. So my list of seven, um, which, you know, I should remember by now, are the nail, wheel, spring, lens, magnet, string, and pup right? So those are my seven fundamental elemental inventions. And the way I came to the list was sometimes physically, but sometimes kind of metaphorically taking things apart. So I started just with the stuff around me. So whether that was my shoes, my laptop, a blender, um, my ballpoint pen. Then I started thinking about the stuff that was around me, like, uh, sorry, outside of my immediate surroundings, So the building across the road or the tunnel below my feet, and so on. And I just kept going up and up in scale, and then breaking them down and thinking, what are the actual elements? They're almost like the atoms, right? The fundamental particles, (laughs) the fundamental inventions that allowed these more complex ones to happen. And I just started making lists. And then I started grouping the objects I came up with together. So for example, The nut and the bolt, the screw, the rivet, they all went under the nail because I felt that the nail was the most fundamental, for example, of those four things. And the more and more I drilled down into those details and really thinking about what is more fundamental than X, Y, Z... I basically came up with this list of seven and I'm sure that there are lots of lively debates to be had about whether these are the seven or you've got different ideas. And I love having those discussions. But yeah, this is the list that I came up with
0: it sounds so impressively organized described like that Um,
2: (laughs) well I'm an engineer right so
1: Um,
2: that's true I mean yeah everything I do is is uh, planned out meticulously in spreadsheets and matrices so um, that's the kind of (laughs) author I am (laughs) well fair enough um well unsurprisingly given
0: how wonderfully structured that is um I believe the interview we're probably going to kind of go along that order and ask you to tell us a bit about each of these items um Mm -hmm. and I would love to start with the nail especially because I must admit my first thought reading it in the book was kind of like oh nails nails are boring right they're just everywhere (laughs) and there's loads of them and they're confusing and like I know theoretically they're important but like eh really and so I was fascinated to read that nail's contrary to my beliefs used to be really precious um, can you tell us about kind of this era in the time span
2: of a nail um yes thank you thank thanks for sharing your you know your initial thoughts about the nail and and i think that's really what all my writing in my books are about is kind of shattering some of those assumptions and stereotypes so i'm i'm glad that the nail is probably um, a more interesting object to you now um, so yes, so nails traditionally sort of now, if you think about the nail, they're made from s- stainless steel or steel, they are pressed out like a thousand a second, you know, so, sort of numbers, a thousand a minute probably, but, you know, in these large factories and that's why they're cheap and they're ubiquitous. And if you're anything like me, there's a few nails randomly in almost all of my drawers. Um, however, that was not always the case, as you alluded to. Because nails before industrialization and before steel really came to being mass manufactured and cheap were were actually precious commodities. The reason being that the material was expensive. They were originally made from different sorts of metals. So we started off with bronze, copper, um, softer materials like gold and silver didn't really work. Then we came into the Iron Age, then it was made out of iron, and then later even made from steel, but each nail had to be hand forged. And having done this process myself in um, a forge, which has been running for well over 150 years in in England, I saw how labor intensive that process was. And it I mean, it took me ages to make my one nail and women and children, particularly um, enslaved people in the US were were making nails... You know, a hundred a day, and so on. That's what they spent their time doing in in particular contexts. So, between the material being expensive and the labor being expensive, the, the, you know, my favorite story about it, how precious it was is is from kind of about three hundred to four hundred years ago, where the British colonialists refused to export nails to any of their colonies because of the expense. However, in North America. Houses were generally made from wood, which is a material obviously very well um, available. So what people used to do if they were moving home was to actually burn their houses down. And then from, you know, the smoldering ashes of their home, they would pick out all the nails and then collect them up and take them to their next location in order to build their next home because nails were so precious. And I just that's such a mind blowing story. And in fact, in this um, sort of early to mid 1600s, the state of Virginia passed a law banning people from burning their houses down and promising homeowners some kind of financial compensation for the nails that they would be leaving behind when they left. See, listeners, this is why I had to ask that question, because I read that in the book and went, hang on, what? That's wild. I love that story. I think that's one of my favorite stories in the book.
0: I'm not surprised. It was one of the ones that most made my jaw absolutely drop. So we've started off, you know, brilliantly here. Strong um, start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of starts, um, obviously one of the first things that people will know about the book is the title. Um, as I said, Nuts and Bolts, right? Before we get into the seven small inventions. Um, but you talk about in the book that the book almost had a different title, Nuts, Bolts and Washers. <laughs> um why was this
2: almost the title and why did it not quite make it? <laughs> well, so so the engineer scientists among you will say, yes, it should have been called nuts, bolts and washers because nuts and bolts don't work very well without the washer. So I have used lots and lots of nuts and bolts in my career. I'm thinking about the shard, which, you know, particularly the top bit of the shard, which is a fully steel structure and it, it's nuts and bolts that hold it all together. But when you do up a nut quite tightly, as you you would for a structure like that, you start to get um, really concentrated points of pressure or compression on the steel underneath the nuts because, of course, our surfaces are not completely smooth and there will be a little bit of adjustments that happen, a little bit of skews and so on. And so it's really important that you put a washer between your piece of steel and the nut Because what the washer does is just to kind of ease those big compressive forces and make sure that it spreads over the steel a little bit better. And that is such a kind of tiny, nerdy little detail. But washers are so incredibly important. Um, And then ultimately, it was, I guess, artist's choice not to call it nuts, bolts and washers, because I, I guess it doesn't quite have the same ring to it.
0: Hmm. As a non-engineer, I would agree, (laughs) but I'm sure there's a bunch (laughs) of engineers screaming at me right now. Um, So we'll see. Yep. (laughs) Speaking of um, myth busting, going back to a point you made earlier, uh, I admit that I was also drawn in by a myth that you very helpfully bust for us. The idea of, well, we shouldn't bother reinventing the wheel, right? We've already got a wheel, works pretty Mm. well. You know, we use it all the time as a way of saying, don't duplicate effort unnecessarily when what we've got is perfectly good. Um, And yet, as you discuss in the book, A, we have actually reinvented the wheel a whole bunch of times and Mm -hmm. usefully so. And there might be further surprises and future reasons to keep reinventing the wheel. So, could you help us understand kind of the surprises and inventions that this maybe overly familiar thing actually has?
2: Yes, you know, I I really kind of played with the idea of including the wheel in the book because I'm like it's so obvious, and a lot of people would name the wheel as one of the top inventions or the top three inventions from humans. But the more I delved into it, the more I thought, hang on a second, the history of the wheel is far more colourful than I think we often give it credit for that we're aware of. Um, And in fact, the wheel, which we associate most strongly with transport, uh, was not invented for that purpose. It, It was in fact invented by the ancient Mesopotamians for pottery. So the potter's wheel was in fact the first form of wheel and axle. When I say wheel, I mean the kind of the wheel and axle. It's got somewhere to spin around. But if you think about it, turning the potter's wheel on its side doesn't work because the two pieces just fall apart thanks to gravity. And so we, in order to reinvent it from the potter's wheel to the wheel and axle for a piece of transport, took nearly a thousand years. And it kind of it feels like a really, really long time, and it is, but the the axle and the wheel are such an incredible piece of engineering in in its own right that you know you need to have the right materials to work with you need to have the right tools that you know you can chisel round holes with for example to allow things to spin not create too much friction what's the right proportion of the rod of the axle you know that should it be really thick should it be really thin you know what's the right balance so there's a lot to think about in that invention so in terms of some of the reinventions of the wheel so we went from the potter's wheel to you know I, I call it the cart wheel um, those were solid to start off with so I talk about the Yamnaya people in the North Caucasus region who created these wheels with three planks of wood that were doweled together. So hooray, nail. (laughs) And they were quite kind of trundly, chunky wheels. Then you come to the spoked wheel, which we see in kind of ancient Buddhist and Hindu motifs and in the cultures and religions. Um, And in fact, the spoked wheel is on the Indian flag, right in the center, that made the wheel lighter, but the wheel still was working under, you know, in compression load. So it was still being squashed. And when things, when a material is being squashed, you need some bulk to it so that it doesn't buckle or deform. So then to flip that wheel into the wire wheel again took about a thousand years. So we're now coming onto the 18th and 19th century and the wire wheel that we most commonly associate with our bicycles now was actually invented for flying machines because they wanted to create a wheel that was as light as possible. So that's not adding dead weight to you know, the early aircraft. And then we um, can think about, I suppose, cousins of wheels where we chipped around the perimeter, the circumference of the wheel and turned it into a gear. And I can't really think of many machines that don't have gears in them. So gears are incredibly important you know, the, in part of our industrialization. And the final iteration that I talk about is the gyroscope. And the gyroscope is one of those slightly trickier things to explain. But, you know, you essentially ha- have got some momentum in, in your wheel, in the weight of the wheel. And when you try and change the axis of the spinning wheel, it pushes back at you. And you can use that to do pretty useful things. And I go from basically the Potter's Wheel in ancient Mesopotamia to the International Space Station, which is in fact um, navigated or its attitude is controlled using four giant flywheels or or gyroscopes. Which is a whole bunch of things that I would not have thought of when just hearing (laughs) the word
0: wheel. So you know, very much making the familiar uh, much more interesting. What then is the future of reinventing the wheel? Uh,
2: I think if I knew the answer to that, I would be a very rich woman. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) um, Yeah. So, so I'm, I am really interested to see what, you know, where the wheel will make its next kind of surprising appearance. I'll I'll be watching. (laughs) Well, thanks to this book, now I
0: will be too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So moving away from the wheel to the next thing, uh, I'd love for you to tell us a bit of a story that you relate in the book. Uh, Obviously, I've only read her name, so who knows if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Hopefully, you can correct me. Um, Who was Josephine Cochrane, And what did she invent that deserves such a place in your book?
2: So this is one of those stories when you know people say why is diversity in engineering important and you know this this is a story one of the stories one of the million stories that you could tell about why it's important and and it's because different people have inevitably found themselves doing different sorts of roles in society and i guess in um the 19th century there were a lot of women washing a lot of dishes and i'm i'm not sure that men did a lot of dishwashing in that era but this this was a woman who was Born into a family of engineers. Of course, they were all male, her, her father, her grandfather, her two grandfathers, I think. And I always wonder whether she was she'd been born Joe instead of Josephine, whether she'd have been one of these engineers as well. But as it happens, she got married, became a housewife, became a socialite, used to invite people over for dinner, got frustrated at her precious china being chipped when you know, the, the crockery and the plates and things were being washed. And so until now, a lot of men had tried to design a dishwasher and not very successfully. And I think it's just, again, her understanding of what really dishwashing entailed and how precious her stuff was, that she started designing the machine from the inside out. So she first designed a wire rack to contain and protect all her dishes. And then she created the machine around it. And that's the opposite approach to the approach that the men had been taking until now and she also didn't include any like scrubbers or brushes that would kind of harshly interact with the crockery so hers was based on um soap and hot water nice and simple so her husband dies and then leaves her in debt and she suddenly realizes that she needs to turn this little idea or a hobby into an actual business and earn some cash And I write about all the various barriers she faced in getting recognition, in getting a patent, in being able to sell her wares and so on. The story ends happily for her compared to a lot of other women, I'm sure from history, where she does she does get a patent. She displays the dishwasher at a huge industrial fair. She gets orders from hotels and restaurants and then later from hospitals, universities And she was basically working on her business until she died. And her business was acquired by KitchenAid, which now sits in the Whirlpool Group. So yeah, so somewhere in this modern company is is the story of, of the first automatic dishwasher that was invented by a woman.
0: Very cool. Thank you for sharing that story with us and obviously including it in the book. Um, it really does speak to that idea, both that engineering doesn't have to be just like scary theoretical maths, it can be really practical, mm. um, and that you know, actual knowledge of all sorts of different experiences can have useful benefits to engineering. Um, mm-hmm. So both
1: very important messages. Thank you very much.
0: moving to our next object um i admit this one was less of a surprise to me springs okay mechanical engineering with you great all right we're going to talk about them in small things like watches yes great i'm following you here this makes lots of sense Mm -hmm. and then now we're magnifying it and talking about the shape of urban landscapes writ large hang on how do springs (laughs) work on all of these different levels um springs are apparently a lot more complicated than i thought
2: Uh, Can you please take us through the many levels of springs? I love springs because they're so versatile. And I, I wonder, I think that spring is probably the most versatile of the inventions I talk about in terms of its form and also in terms of its applications. Now, the form thing is an interesting one because it took me a long time to explain to my team what a spring they kept asking me what is a spring but what but what actually is a spring and I really had to dig deep to figure out a definition and ultimately I came to the conclusion that it's it's basically a mechanism which you can deform that stores energy and then releases that energy and you can use that energy to do something useful so a lot of people, associate the word spring with the coiled metal spring. But in fact, springs can be C-shaped or bow-shaped. And in fact, the bow of the bow and the arrow is a spring. And I believe the earliest form of spring that we made. And then it can be applied, as you said, to really, really tiny, fiddly, precise, accurate mechanisms like watches. And springs really revolutionized time in that sense. Because if you think about the big clock towers or grandfather clocks or the pendulum clocks, they were bulky and they weren't very accurate. The pendulum clock did bring some accuracy, quite a lot of accuracy. In fact, I should give the pendulum some credit. Um, but you couldn't transport accurate time. So the idea that you know we just kind of usually put our phone screen on and see exactly what the time is, was an alien concept to people even just a few hundred years ago. So, this, and it's the spring that allowed us to do that and make time portable and make it extraordinarily accurate. So, that's one end of the spectrum. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum is a world that I'm more familiar with as a structural engineer. And building in London is always fraught because we've got so many underground tunnels with big, rumbling, loud trains. And when you're building above them, you can start feeling the vibrations coming into your structure. And so we use different forms of springs, uh, coiled metal ones for sure, but also rubber pads, which in my view are forms of springs. And we often put them below the columns at the ground floor or below the columns at the first floor. And they almost act like a circuit breaker for these vibrations coming into the building. And so it makes the you know the human experience of a building much nicer i also talk about how most most um musical venues orchestral halls have a lot of springs involved in their construction and creation to create beautiful soundscapes so that it be you know it's really really silent when you're sitting in there you can hear every note and I guess there's, and at the largest end of of this particular scale, are probably the springs that go under buildings to help protect against earthquakes. So when your ground is kind of very chaotically and strongly trying to shake a building, you can use springs to absorb some of that energy and hopefully reduce the amount of damage and destruction that occurs to our structures. And see, that's the power of a good idea. A lot
0: of those examples are things that it, maybe if I would thought properly about them with matrices and spreadsheets, I could have gone, oh, I can <laughs> see how those are all springs, uh, but I had never actually put any of that together. So thank you for taking us through the spectrum of things that a spring can do. Um, similarly, string, the next in our list, uh, you describe as having Three principles of good design, their strength, utility Mm. and beauty, and that String really does a good job exhibiting all three of these,
2: which is quite impressive. So how does String do all of this? I think String was my most surprising on the list, at least for me, I didn't expect to end up with a list that included string on it. Um, I think, like you said, you know, spring, you think, yep, yeah, mechanical, I thought of gears, I thought of nails, I thought, you know, all of this stuff, but string to me was maybe the um, the dark horse in the race. And I, I was thinking a lot about, so Vitruvius, who was an ancient Roman engineer, master builder, architect, wrote these books on how to build well, you know, for humans to live. And he talks about these three principles of designs, uh, design which are you know beauty, utility, and I've forgotten the r- the last one, strength. strength. That was it. <laughs> and I said, hold on, string does all of these things. So I can give you one maybe one quick example for each. If we think about utility, I think clothes are such an integral part of most humans' lives around the planet, and it has been for quite a long time. Clothes have allowed us to live in different climates to protect our skin, to protect us from extreme heat and cold. And so it's actually changed again, similarly to spring, um, which I said allows you to live in busy busy cityscapes more easily. String has allowed us to live in parts of the world you know, on our planet that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So there's a very practical element to them. I also then talk about the beauty of string. And I think I talk about music in that instance. Now, I am not a musician. I'm, I'm a dancer. And I thought back to my training in Bharat Natyam, which is an ancient classical form of Indian dance. And I think back to all the instruments that were used in, um, in my training and in the music and the performances that I did. And so many of them are centered around string as well. And it's really the principles of string, which is this idea of strength, but with flexibility that allows us to create beautiful music. You need to be able to pluck a guitar string or a violin string or a tanpura string in order to create these beautiful sound vibrations. So that's, that's the beauty example. And then finally, I go to strength. And so this is where, again, I hopefully will surprise my readers and our listeners today where I explained that the idea of the twisted string, so where you take different fibers, you twist them up, you take different strands, you twist those up to make a nice strong piece of you know, thread or string or rope, um, is actually the same principle behind some of the largest bridges in the world. So suspension bridges are the form of bridge that allows us to kind of hit the two kilometer mark, which is about where we are at the moment in terms of the longest unsupported span. And they are cables made up of dozens, if not hundreds of steel fibers and steel wires that come together to create the cables that do this incredibly hard work. Um, And so, yeah, I I love that, you know, the jump from Neanderthal string, that little tiny piece of twine that we found, which is potentially forty to 50,000 years old to the largest bridges in the world today. Mm, very much
0: a jump um, in time. <laughs> and I think my next question might be a little bit of a jump um, in terms of connotations people have in their minds. Um, because in the book, you have a wonderful story of Playtex, perhaps most commonly thought of in terms of making things like bras mm-hmm. and NASA moon missions, which, you know, bras, not historically (laughs) involved in those early on especially so how and why was playtex involved in those early nasa moon missions
2: yeah so um this is another story about the role of women in technology and i'm going to slightly divert us for a second because i also want to talk about the role of of the non-western world And, you know, brown and black people, people of color in science and engineering. I often ask people, have you heard of Newton? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, of course we have. And I say, well, have you heard of Ibn al-Haytham? And people are like, no, who's that? And in fact, he was one of the biggest pioneers of the Islamic golden age of science and did a ton of work on optics way before, 700 years before Newton was in the picture. And so, you know, him... I talk about Takayanagi Kenjiro, who was the first inventor of the all-electric television, but we always hear the names of the US and UK inventors of the television. I talk about Jagdish Chandra Bose, who is an Indian scientist without whom radio technology would not be possible, but he never patented his work. Um, Takayanagi never patented his work either. So there are all of these stories that I think get lost in history because they're not from a system of power and a system that allows powerful people or rich people to have patents. And I guess this, you know, the Playtex story kind of relates to that in the sense that NASA's planning moon missions, they're thinking about what the astronauts are going to actually wear. If you're inspired by the old scuba diving gear made from metal, it's not very mobile. And Playtex went, huh? Hold on, maybe we've got some materials that could do the job, and maybe some techniques that we can use to do the job. And so what they did was to create an astronaut suit, in as part of their application to NASA to say, look, we can do this. And then they filmed somebody wearing this suit playing football, like I think American football, and sent this film off to NASA and said, look, uh, we can make this really flexible suit that the astronauts will be able to move around in and so on. And they won the contract um, for the Apollo moon landings. And then a team of seamstresses, this team of women who thus far had been, like you say, making girdles and bras and corsets, turned their hand to the space race. And there are interviews of this of these women um out there which which are incredible to listen to and they basically talk about how they um, sewed together close to 21 layers of what they describe as gossamer thin fabric together to create these suits different layers you know for heat protection for flexibility for coolness for for all of these different things and they used the same sewing machines it was the same technology that they were using to do all their other sewing And how when, you know, Neil Armstrong was taking his first steps, they were kind of holding their hair in their hands going, I really hope none of those stitches pop. And I really hope that no needles have been left um, in the suit. But yeah, an incredible story.
0: Well, and hopefully next time any of us see those images again, instead of necessarily just thinking about the men involved, we're also thinking about those women who made it possible, um, which is absolutely fascinating. If I may, I'd love to uh, briefly touch on the final item in the list, the pump, um, which you discuss in the book on a number of angles. And this kind of takes us, I suppose, from history with the space missions to the future, um, because the pump one of the pumps that you focus on and i was really pleased that you did is one that many people actually probably do interact with the breast pump and um, mm. there's so many kinds of pumps in the world many of which we might you know see in a industrial setting but a breast pump for many people lives in our homes um and there's some kind of obvious problems with a lot of them. So would you mind telling us a bit about how engineers are radically redesigning and rethinking the breast pump?
2: Yeah, I mean, so this is this is one of those things where I thought, how many engineering books are out there that write about the breast pump? There's probably not very many. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as um, a mother and somebody who, tried and very much struggled with breastfeeding, I thought, you know what, the breast pump has actually had a significant impact on my life and I should 100% write about it. And then when I started delving into the history of the design of the breast pump, it kind of blew my mind. And, you know, you said about this being a pump that some of us have in our homes. It also kind of shocked me that the portable electric pumps that many of us do have, I had a manual pump in my particular case, but you can get these portable electric ones, um, only really made their appearance in the 1990s, which is when I was you know, a tween. And I thought, goodness me, that's not very long ago at all. And so the history of the breast pump was really about health. So if you know the, the parent or the mother was unable to breastfeed, their child had some issues or was too weak, they might have been premature, they might have been ill in some way, then how can we get some of the parents' milk out in order to feed it to the child? And so they were very kind of, right, this has to do this particular job, not thinking, I think, about the woman's needs at all. So they were There had been breast pumps around for longer than I expected, actually, like a couple of hundred years, but they tended to be like glass bulbs and you put a tube into your mouth and then trying to suck the milk out. And I really don't see how those would have worked. must have been (laughs) super, super awkward. Then inspired by milking cows, some Australian blokes came up with an electric pump for breastfeeding parents. Um... Ouch, I think, is my summary of that whole situation. Ouch on many levels. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the suck and release function, which is, you know, the ones we're familiar with now, which sort of mimics how a baby suckles didn't come in until, you know, the 20th century. And there was a Swedish engineer who said, you know what, let me at least count how many times a baby's mouth sucks in a minute and let me make my pump reflect that. And I think, I think on average it's about 47 sucks a minute ish. And so that was the first time he looked at that and then looked at, you know, what is the safe pressure for nipple tissue and breast tissue. Um, so we're starting to get closer, <laughs> starting to get a bit better. <laughs> um, and then really it's only been in the fi- last five to seven years that I can see that women are actually designing breast pumps and starting from scratch and saying, well, you know, what do modern women actually need from a breast pump? So many of us will go back to work while we're still breastfeeding. So we might need to express at work. And that's a whole other conversation about where and how and when you do that. So they thought, well, is there something we can solve with our design of the pump with that regard? Can it be less noisy than that kind of it, I mean, it sounds so industrial, doesn't it? When it's kind of yeah, you grinding a away. You, you really feel like a cow. So can we make it silent? Can we make it small, discreet? Um, and let's try and make mothers not feel like cows, I think was one of their criteria, <laughs> um, which was nice. And so, you know, you're now getting breast pumps that are battery operated that you can actually put into your bra and collect some milk and then you can keep it in the fridge and take it home. You can, they're so silent, thanks to a special type of pump, which I um, describe the piezoelectric pump, that you can walk around and be in your office while you're pumping, which would not have been possible otherwise. So, yeah, again, another example of really centering the needs of the person or the people, the demographic that are going to use the piece of technology um, and then coming up with a solution rather than trying to, you know, just push a solution or a machine onto to someone. Mm.
0: So given that in the book you talk us through, um, obviously in more detail than we've been able to hear, but hopefully this gives listeners a taste, um, these seven mm-hmm. inventions and also sort of different stories about them, right? Different ways of thinking about them, different ways of thinking about coming to engineering and the kinds of problems and the kinds of people that can be involved. What do you want readers to take away and maybe to do after reading this book? No, thank you.
2: That's such a lovely question. I, I think my my first intention is kind of what you described earlier is the jaw-dropping, interesting, fascinating facts, smashing some stereotypes, getting some really interesting stories out there, and particularly the stories of marginalized people whose stories aren't normally told. So that's one of my big intentions. With this particular book, what I also want people to take away is a sense of curiosity. So where we might think that, oh, the nail isn't terribly fascinating, or the spring only comes in this one particular form. I want to encourage people to question that and go, hold on a second, this thing that I previously thought only came in one form and is quite uninteresting might have a really cool story behind it. Let me go investigate that. Let me ask a few questions about it. In my conclusion, I write about a kind of practical reason why I think this is important. So, if we talk about the climate crisis and the amount of electronic waste we produce or just waste in general, it feels really overwhelming. Like, what can I as an individual do? And I'm saying, well, step one is this curiosity, is just to say, let me just learn a little bit more about this technology and engineering around me. Now, my smartphone might seem really intimidating. I can't really open it up, or my laptop or my dishwasher. But what if I just think about some of the small components in these more complicated pieces of technology? So if I start small, ask those questions, get those incredibly interesting stories, then my relationship with these objects might change. I might not throw them away as quickly. I might have a go at repairing them when they break. I might have a go at making my own clothes um, and so on. And so I just want to kind of leave readers and listeners with that initial, that spark of curiosity that just leads them to wanting to understand the human made technology around us a little bit better. Speaking of sparks
0: of curiosity leading places, as my final question, um, this book is out at least in the UK and it will soon be available to listeners in the United States as well. Um, But either way, that means it's off your desk. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything you might have your eye on, a spark of curiosity about what might be next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's related to this, anything you'd like to share about
2: future things with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a few different things. So I'm working on the children's version of Nuts and Bolts, which will be called Seven Small Inventions. So that will be out next year. And I'm really excited about that um, because I want younger readers to also, I mean, just that they have the curiosity. I just want to channel it into um, small stuff. So that's really exciting. I also work on a podcast called Create the Future, which is about different areas of engineering and where the futures of that might be going. So that's a really interesting podcast if you'd like to have a look. Um, I'm working on an exciting documentary at the moment that I can't say too much about, but again, just looking at new connections, new stories of, of stuff from history that haven't been told before. And I'm slowly, (laughs) I'm slowly regaining my energy to start thinking about the next adult book idea as well. So yeah, there'll definitely be more from me. Well,
0: that's very exciting and best of luck with all of those projects. And of course, um, while you're off doing them, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way. Um, It's already out in the UK. It will be out in November in the US. Roma, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
2: Oh, it's been a complete pleasure. Thank you so much.